Welcome to Many Happy Returns, where we aim to make you a better investor. I'm Roman. And I'm Michael. We're delighted to be joined by Mary Childs to discuss her recent book, The Bond King. This is the story of Bill Gross, the legendary investor and fund manager who revolutionized the bond market. Bonds are a financial tool used by companies and countries to fund themselves. Before Bill Gross, bonds were the sleepy backbone of retirement accounts, paying the holders a steady stream of coupons each year. But Gross upended all of that. After co-founding investment giant PIMCO in the 1970s, Gross pioneered active bond trading, buying, selling and exploiting any advantage to eke out extra returns for investors. But PIMCO was riven by internal political battles and a toxic culture, and it all came to a head in 2014. With the performance of the fund now lacklustre, Gross's behaviour became increasingly erratic, and internal conflict led to the resignation of CEO Mohamed El Arian. Bill Gross left PIMCO later that year in an acrimonious departure that rocked the financial world. This is the story of the Bond King. Okay, well, thank you so much for joining us, Mary, to talk about your book, The Bond King. We both really enjoyed it. Me particularly, because my background is in fixed income. So, you know, I'm a bit of a bond nerd. So for me, it was great. Yeah, I don't know if you did any sort of market research for your book, but if you had, Roman's face would have just come up. It's the market research. (laughs) It's so weird that did happen. Yeah, I'm so glad to get to actually meet live now. So let's just give your background. So you're co-host of the Planet Money podcast. That's right. On NPR. You're also a financial journalist. You've written for all the big financial news outlets. I think what we really would be interested in is how you got started on the story. What interested you in Bill Gross in particular and about PIMCO? Yeah. So the short, easy answer to that is it was just random luck. I had been covering bonds at Bloomberg for a number of years as a beat reporter, just, you know, focus on the credit market. And the job to cover PIMCO just became available. And I was like, that sounds cool. You know, it's PIMCO, BlackRock, it was a bunch of the big asset managers. And Mohamed Alarian had just left PIMCO. So I was kind of like, mm, bummer, I guess I missed the big story. But kind of more relevant to the conversation, perhaps, and less particular to me, is that I just think PIMCO and Bill are so foundational to the bond market that it was just wild how little public awareness there was and public, I don't know, like information to even dig in. If you wanted to understand the bond market, understand Bill, understand PIMCO, you had to like read all of Felix Salmon's old blog posts and, you know, study the, it was just like pretty inaccessible in a way that I thought was unhelpful and silly. So I figured once all of the action started in 2014, the events that led to Bill's ouster uh, from PIMCO, I was like, this seems like a great story. This is a really fun, dramatic yarn, but it also communicates so much about the world and so much about this influential corner of the market. So I love the tagline for the book, how one man made a market, built an empire and lost it all. It kind of sums up the journey, right? The arc of Bill Gross. It's a bit of a spoiler I've learned, yes. (laughs) (laughs) But it's incredible how he transformed the market, wasn't it? Because you described the story about when he first started at what was essentially just a kind of a place in the sticks, you know, stuck in Newport Beach, clipping coupons on bonds. That's how he kind of got started, right? That's exactly right. And I think California was not the place to be. The buy side was not the place to be. You know, this was even pre-liars poker. So, you know, you wanted to be at a bank being that kind of official person and, you know, managing relationships and making recommendations and being on the buy side was kind of, 
And that was reflected in how much you got paid as well. It was a pretty enormous differential. So Bill was like, ugh, this is the best I can do. This is the job that I got. So here we are. <laughs> We've all been there. I know, right? It's very, I find this story very accessible. You know, it's like, hmm. And so he's doing this job clipping coupons and to some extent also being a credit analyst. You know, he's helping make judgments as to what kind of companies his company should lend to. And this guy comes along and basically sells him on the idea of trading bonds, which was a radical concept at the time. So instead of just having a huge swath of bonds and just having a bond ladder, you know, as one matures, you buy another one. Instead of that, instead of just getting the income, you're actually saying, well, you know, this bond is looking kind of attractive or cheap. So I think what I'm going to do is buy this one. Exactly. And then sell the one I've got. And that increases your return. Is that right? Well, if you do it well, yes, exactly. <laughs> if you do it poorly, it can decrease. But the idea of the latter is exactly it. You know, as an insurance company, the company that he worked for had this need to know when their, you know, assets and liabilities were coming due and when they would need to be paying out for those liabilities. So having bonds that actually paid regular interest payments or matured at a given time, and they could just predict that, that was huge. And that meant the world to them to be able to just make that kind of prediction very, very, very reliably. And Bill's suggestion is, I mean, this is radical. He's like, why don't we not do it that way? Why don't we remove that safety entirely and just mess around and see what happens? And it was by any measure, it was just spectacularly successful, wasn't it? Yes, quite. Because I think he went from almost no money under management. What did he start with? Something like $5 million? $5 million, yeah. Which is nothing for the company at that time to managing the biggest bond fund yeah. on the planet. $293 billion in PIMCO total return at its peak in just the mutual fund. So that's not even counting the separately managed accounts that kind of travel alongside. So yeah, it was absolutely enormous and wildly successful. And, you know, I think he's arguably the most successful bond manager. Although I think, you know, there are a couple, Jeffrey Gunlock would maybe take issue with that. In terms of the actual book itself, I was amazed because at various points in the book, you say, but Mohammed Alerian's lawyers said such and such. So how much were the people who were involved in the book actually giving you pushback? And was it difficult legally to write the book? It was just in every way difficult to write the book, I think. It is a book about powerful people and people who are unaccustomed to not controlling the narrative, right? Who are really not practiced in the way of having someone else tell their story. And like, I don't work for them. I never worked for them. And I think that was like genuinely a foreign concept to them. And a lot of the subjects were deeply uncomfortable with being interviewed and talking about their experience, which I totally get, of course. And this was, you know, a horrible experience for them. And beyond that, it was an expensive experience. You know, the shadow equity of PIMCO suffered from the 2014 events and the kind of reduced prestige of the firm. So I think there was a lot of emotion around that, which I a little bit undercounted when I started the book project. But Mohammed Alarian for many years refused to speak with me for the book. And which was actually surprising to a lot of people, I think, because externally outside of PIMCO, his reputation is just absolutely glowing and he's known for being in the press so much. And so everyone assumed that Bill Gross wouldn't talk to me and that Muhammad Alarian would be the most helpful person alive. Everyone within PIMCO was assuming the opposite, uh, that, you know, <laughs> Bill would want to get his story out and Muhammad would not. So I guess Muhammad had more to lose in their view. So yeah, at some point, Muhammad Alarian got a copy of the manuscript, which is not something we do not share manuscripts before publication. That's like absolutely a journalistic no, no, I guess. And he gets a copy of it. 
and sends his notes over after refusing to speak with me for many years. And, you know, happily, the notes were things that I could incorporate or weren't that many. You know, I'd done so much work and to kind of triangulate his experience and his perspective that I was delighted to see that it wasn't that substantial. <laughs> frankly, <laughs> You know, I'm like, OK, I did a good job. It was very last minute. It was December 2021. So it was like you had to untype set the book. My publisher was very accommodating, but we were able to make those changes and add his lawyer's views in. I heard there was a rumor, Mary, that the book nearly didn't get published because someone offered you $10 million not to publish. <laughs> Is that right? I also heard that rumor. Yeah. Unfortunately, no one ever paid me $10 million. Not yet. No, no one offered to bribe me, sadly. But I also heard that rumor because I think there was a lot about this book that was just foreign, right? They're like, why are you so slow? Why are you taking so long? And I'm like, in part, because none of y'all are cooperating. Like I'm trying, you know. But they also, I think, were just like anxious about it. So every minute felt like a hundred years. Like, yes, I took a long time. Books take a long time, especially research heavy ones. And I'm, you know, out here trying to dig people up from like the 1960s early bond market, which was fun, but but laborious, right? And I think that they also figure, you know, it reflects their priorities, right? Where they assume that I'm the kind of person who can be bought and who would just happily take $10 million. No, you have integrity. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. They were like, what? Why would you not? Yeah. Do that? That's why you can never manage a bond fund. <laughs> <laughs> Your word's not mine. <laughs> but it makes me wonder. I wonder how many other books were going to be written. Right. But actually didn't make it because they took the money. Right. Is this a lucrative career that we, sh that we don't know about? Like shadow not writing books? <laughs> I mean, I should say at this point that Roman and I are happy to take money to not publish a podcast <laughs> episode. <laughs> I'll pass that along. <laughs> I think from my point of view, the shock really was the toxic culture at PIMCO. You know, I was working on the sell side at investment banks and I read the investment outlooks. I was a strategist at investment banks. So for me, it was interesting because it was almost written in a childlike style. Yeah. He published his kind of investment outlooks and he talked about his cat <laughs> and you'd just be thinking, what is this guy talking about? But then there's a kind of kernel of truth in it. You know what I mean? Yes, quite. People love those. Everybody read those investment outlooks and they were always kind of like a head scratcher. Like, why is he sharing this story? But then it's also like, we're all reading it. So <laughs> that's why. But it's interesting that outside PIMCO, people thought of him as this kind of avuncular character that sits by the fireside and tells these stories. And yet it took so long for the actual difficulties of character and the fractiousness that he had with other members of staff, almost everyone that he worked with, to come out. And it took that Wall Street Journal story to come out. And there were also hints about it in the FT. So how do you think he managed to keep that disconnect for so long? I think it's, it's hard to do those investigative stories, for one. And when there's no news peg to it, to some extent, we kind of, as a society, just accept at face value what we're presented with, because finding out the truth of it is usually a little unproductive. And like, why would you spend your time doing that? And hard to get to. It's just, you know, those journal stories and FT stories and Bloomberg too, all of those took years. At least I'm trying to think when Greg and Kirsten started reporting their story. And I think it was, it was only like a month, but still you have to have two dedicated reporters for a month doing this digging and talking to people and cajoling people. You also don't always know. It's like treasure hunting a little bit. You know, you've got your little metal detector, but like not every firm's going to have that depth of story and that disconnect necessarily. 
So there is a world in which you just waste your time trying to be like, oh, everyone at this firm is actually quite happy. Oh, okay. Or like unhappy in the same way. You know, like it's not always a rewarding experience. And certainly there are firms that like as reporters you hear a lot about and don't always write about. But you're right, PIMCO wasn't one of those. PIMCO was known within the bond world as being like harsh and toxic. Yeah, I think they would object to me saying bullying, but I think I'm allowed to have an opinion on that. But, you know, that's like a not a dynamic state. That's just who they were. So it's like, well, how is that a story? You know, it's not a story until it's really a story. And how much was Bill Gross responsible for building a toxic culture, as you say? Yeah, I think it's a good question because I don't think that he meant to, which of course doesn't really matter. I think his personality traits are very intense. You know, he's an intense guy and, and super focused and not very interested in nicety. And I think that he's just like not a very like, hey, how you doing? How was your weekend? Like, he's just not going to spend time having that chat. And I think that the lack of interest in kind of culture and management from him, but also these like sharp edge personality traits and his harshness, like his intensity, that itself created this toxicity because people like were desperate to please him and wanted to make money and like wanted to do well. So he's so harsh on people. Therefore, it becomes a little bit of a pressure cooker. But I think the thing that makes it worse in my mind is that when people see that and they want to be a kind of a culture keeper and they want to be like politically cool, they're going to carry that out like even worse, in my opinion. So I think Bill didn't have the intention to be a bad guy or mean or a jerk. I don't think that was what he was setting out to do. It was kind of a byproduct of his intensity and in seeking, you know, trying to get better returns and just being who he is, for better or worse. And then the kind of secondary effect is that everyone carries that out. When he's not around, they're sending terrible emails and like being so harsh because that's what Bill does. It's kind of what did for him in the end, and or at least was part of it, right? The toxic culture turned on him. I think that's right. Yeah. You know, there was this sense that if you didn't have good returns for the last every single time, Horizon, why are you talking? You shouldn't even be participating, that you have no credibility. And the minute that became true for Bill, I think that was when you start to see his armor fall apart you know, that is the culture that he built and it did turn on him. And the kind of infighting and politicking that he expressed no interest in, but also didn't manage at all and didn't kind of guide anyone away from it. I think that did kind of come for him. So in terms of the returns, I mean, you kind of touched on it there. I mean, it was spectacular for many years and he made some incredible calls. But then things started to go wrong, I think, in 2011. And when I read your chapter, I didn't realize it was that extreme. Right. He sold all of his treasuries, like all of them. All of them. It's like the deepest, most liquid market on the planet. He's a conviction investor, Ramin. <laughs> <laughs> but it's just astonishing that you could be that confident to go to zero for treasuries. And yet he did, you know, and there was no pushback. You'd have thought there's a risk committee that would say this is crazy. Yeah. A lot of people pointed to that lack of risk management, that this is a guy who built a firm on saying like, oh, Kelly Criterion, I learned in Vegas and we don't, we don't stray from like betting 2% at a time, you know, and then all of a sudden it's 0% treasuries. Like, where are we on this? And then on the investment outlook, he says, you know, treasuries are a Ponzi scheme. You know, the Fed's buying all of the new issuance, 70% of it anyway. And then, of course, everything went wrong. The US got downgraded. There was a European crisis going on, the sovereign debt crisis. And then equity markets sold off. And there's a great quote in your book, which is that all the children are left on the trading desk <laughs> in the thin markets in yeah. summer. Yeah. Augusts are always supposed to be quiet. And I have yet to experience a quiet August. It just doesn't happen. <laughs> like, everyone's like, all right, take care. I'll be in the Hamptons. And then everything just people get jumpy. All that stuff you just said though, Roman, that the treasury market's a Ponzi scheme. It's time to get out. EM's going to be a problem. Interest rates are going to go up. 
isn't that where we are now? People are saying the same thing again. <laughs> it was just early. It was just a mere decade and a little bit early. <laughs> I love that, though. I think you'd appreciate that. But how did that affect his kind of standing at PIMCO? Is that really the kind of point at which they questioned his leadership? I think so. I mean, it was such a big, bold, spectacular call and he got so much attention in the press for it that I do think it was like flag in the ground. Like, I mean it full conviction, like you're saying. And, you know, this guy had delivered such an above market performance for so long that this was shocking in every way. Like you're saying, it's risk management. It's deviating from all of those things that made the firm so great and delivered that performance. And I think that outside of PIMCO, people were like, oh, that's weird. You know, whenever you see a big call from like a big fund manager, there's kind of like a little thrill. It's like, oh, like we're really in it now. Like this is going to be fun. Yeah. And I think that's definitely the case. And then when it starts to turn, everyone was like, oh, I never really thought it through. Like Bill Gross can be wrong. Like, huh. <laughs> and a lot of clients were like, all right, that wasn't cool. But like, I trust him. Like I've been with him for decades. Like this is fine. And there's a story from a fund manager, a former PIMCO guy in the book where he's like, if anybody else had taken a swing like that, they would have blown up you did okay. And Bill's like, eh, I mean, kind of, you know, that's fair. I do think that like relative to the size of the conviction train, like he did great, but like, oh, so clients stuck with him for the most part at PIMCO. I think it was just like, that was weird and bad, but okay. Like let's move on. And had the events of 2014 not started to percolate, I think that things could have been fine. I think you could recover from that. Was it um, a kind of overconfidence because they'd gone through the financial crisis in 2007 to 2009, you know, better than anyone, right, PIMCO? Yeah. And they called that right. And is it the case that once you've been through that, you see crises everywhere to profit from, <laughs> even if they don't exist? Yes, I think that's right. I mean, and you'll note that whenever like Michael Burry opens his mouth, we're all like, guy who called the crisis. Like, <laughs> definitely in the media, we feed that a little, just a little bit. Um, but I do think that's right. I think it was sort of like, you're this big, important guy and everybody's hanging on your every word. You, very easy to lose perspective. And in terms of how he actually generated the returns when there was a good year, I was a little bit surprised by that as well. I mean, obviously, you've got things that you talk about in the book, like structural alpha, where, you know, you have derivatives where you sell volatility. Yeah. So you're selling options. And if the market kind of stays in a range, you kind of pocket premium. But then if it kind of goes crazy, you lose out. Yes. So as long as markets are kind of well behaved, it's all fine. You know, that one was OK. I mean, that's completely legal and funds do it all the time. But then they were talking about things like a rule I'd never heard of, which is the 17A7. Yeah. So how does that work? I mean, do funds use that all the time? So not all funds. This is one of those things where, you know, I've done a deep dive on PIMCO and like, to some extent that made it hard for me at first to figure out like, is this normal? You know, I'm like, oh, 17A7, everybody does that all the time. And then I mentioned it to like the head of some enormous fund management company. And he was like, we do not do that. And I was like, uh, okay, sir. Like, whoa. It was like, I had just said the most inappropriate. He was like, I need to have you arrested. Like, <laughs> don't say that word in my house. And then like this other guy at like a very shady shop said the same thing. And I was like, is 1787 bad? And like, you'll see that, you know, the SEC was looking at it and there were a lot of letters being like, please don't take it. We really like it. So there are other people that are willing to, you know, PIMCO was obviously among them, but there are other firms that are willing to put their names on it because it is useful. When you start a new fund, uh, a lot of times, you know, you'll kind of shuffle bonds from other funds just to fill up the new guy. That's a 1787 trade because the basic thing is it's a 40 act uh, loophole. It's not really a loophole. It's just a regular part of the rule. But 
you basically can trade within funds if they're under the same family. And so PIMCO figured this out. And this is kind of, I put this in the category of like, if it's in the law, then you can do it. And like, have fun, like go for it. So I think they were like, okay, it works this way. It works that way. And let's kind of use this as much as we can. And that can is a bit subjective, right? That's going to differ between people and between firms. But I guess it's to stop your kind of prices being marked down because if people see that you're having to sell something, if you're working in the open market, then they could kind of rip your face off, as they say, in the bond market. Yeah. If everyone knows that you're axed in one way or the other, if you have a massive position that you have to sell, they're all circling you. They're going to try to give you bad prices. They're going to try to lean on you. And that's bad for you. And that's bad for your clients. And if it's bad for your clients, then you shouldn't do it. So what you should do is have other funds that you can kind of shuffle those bonds over to sell those bonds, you know, put them in a different bucket where they can be safe for right now and kind of weather the everyone circling danger time and bring them back out. If they're good bonds, they're good bonds. It sounds like a bit like building a bad bank where you just warehouse the stuff you don't want anyone to know about. It's being your own fed. You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. When I told my partner about it, she just said, can you do that? Is that legal? And I said, yeah, it's legal in the US. Yeah. And I think, you know, there are some boundaries to it. And I think, again, there's subjectivity. And I think regulators would be like, no, you can't just move them. You know, if you think that you're going to get a bad price, because then you're disadvantaging this client over that client. And that's where it gets sticky. And you have to get a third party quote to, you know, where the price would be. And I think there's some subjectivity in who you ask for that quote. So there are ways to make it a little squidgy, but at the same time, you know, at a certain point, you're going to get a phone call. You said about being your own Fed. I mean, it seemed to me that in the financial crisis, Bill Gross kind of thought he might be the Fed and the Treasury, right? And he kind of publicly, I don't know what the word is, bullied is too strong, but like forced them into (laughs) underwriting his position, right? Yeah, exactly. Kind of forced their hand. Yeah. All of this kind of public posturing about what he thought that the Fed should do, that the government should do with respect to Fannie Freddie, with respect to a lot of different things. You know, their strategy was overtly shake hands with the government, buy what they buy, but get there first. They said that out loud. I didn't, you know, like that took no reporting on my part whatsoever. (laughs) I just wrote it down. (laughs) Like I think about it now as, you know, we were all talking about like Goldman Sachs and getting so mad at the banks. And meanwhile, all this is happening. And I know there were people that were on this as well, but it seems like it permeated the cultural consciousness a lot less. Oh, the banks got bailed out. And it's like, well, not just. (laughs) Look at all the bond funds. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So just to explain this, I mean, if people aren't familiar with it, so you have in America, you've got Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, and you've got US mortgages, and they get packaged up in things called MBS. And then they get a kind of stamp of approval from Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. And it was always implicit that the government kind of backed Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, never explicit. But then when we had the massive write downs in mortgages, they'd go to the wall unless they had government support. Exactly. What Bill Gross came up with was the idea of the umbrella. Yes. So some assets he thought the government would support, some of them he thought they wouldn't support. So he just filled his total return fund to the gills with... Everything under the umbrella, yeah. And then he kind of went on the public media and said, look, in fact, it was Hilarion, wasn't it? Macaulay and Greenspan went on TV. Oh, that was it. Macaulay and Greenspan. And Greenspan, I didn't realize, was a consultant for PIMCO as well. I know, right? But yeah, that's you summarized that beautifully. That's exactly right. So they go on TV and they're basically lobbying for the government to backstop the things that are in their portfolio, to backstop Fannie and Freddie and make that promise explicit, not implicit. 
And lo and behold, the government did exactly that. And, you know, there's a reasonable debate here where like, okay, this is the outcome we have. Was there a better, different outcome? Was there another way to handle this? And like, was it the wrong call just because it benefited PIMCO? I think the argument is like, it was in their book because they believed it. It's what they said the government should do because they believe that's what the government should do. So they can, you know, be earnest and also talking their book. But it is like, where does this become not okay? Like, if we have credit markets that the government engages in, where do we draw that line as to what kind of behaviors we find unacceptable? It's tricky. I think there was another example of that, which I found pretty shocking, was Bill Gross appearing on TV on CNBC. Uh-huh. And it was five to one. And he was saying, oh, tips are terrible. I see no value in them. And then literally five minutes later, PIMCO buys a huge amount of tips in a bond auction. I mean, do you think that should be legal? Oh, above my pay grade. I'm going to punt on that one. No, I do think it's something that people talk about with respect to PIMCO all the time, you know, that they'll be talking up one security while they're selling it to you or talking down one while they're buying it. And to some extent, people say that about fund managers on TV all the time. Like, yeah, you're talking your book, but you're positioning the Ackman COVID trade, right? Yeah. And I think that there's, again, it's the same thing. It's like, you can believe it in your heart. And like, maybe Bill Gross didn't like tips and his trader did. We might live in that world. I don't know. You've got a uh, Stockholm syndrome, I think, Mary. <laughs> that is probably right. Or I've talked to a lot of lawyers about this. <laughs> I mean, I think it is sincerely hard to prove that, right? And they're not so dumb as to be like, hey, do the, you know, they're not generally, you know, you do see a lot of emails that are regrettable in one of the chapters, but for the most part, they're not emailing, let's do an illegal wire fraud. But I think that you're right. It is deeply troubling and would that we could regulate it better. I mean, it kind of shows that the scale of a company like PIMCO just blows any sort of retail trader or smaller shop out of the water, right? The things they can do and move the market yeah, and know how they're going to move the market ahead of time just puts them in almost a league of their own, at least at that time. I think that's right. It's funny because for so many years, people were like, oh, PIMCO's too big. It's bad for them. <laughs> and it's the opposite. You know, it was always basically to their benefit, you know, especially in a bond bill market, which is another thing that people would say was that, oh, they just buy the market and rates go down and everything's great. But I do think that having that degree of influence and power, like it is this kind of hyper concentration that we see in other places in our economies. And it's like, is that what we meant to do? Yeah. Is that good for us? <laughs> and in terms of dodgy trades, I was, I was a little bit shocked by the thing they did with odd lots as well with the ETF. Yeah. Because what was really transparent was that there was something odd going on. So just to kind of set the scene, you've got the total return fund, essentially a kind of fixed income juggernaut. And then they come up with a new wrapper for it, an ETF wrapper. So it's a little bit cheaper, same idea, same stuff, roughly, same strategy, but it's wrapped as an ETF. So it's kind of liquid. You've got intraday liquidity. So should be similar returns, right? But that wasn't quite the case, was it? That's right. The ETF ended up trouncing the mutual fund product. And they're supposed to be the same product, the same strategy, the same stuff. But I guess in just a fit of enthusiasm, like wanting this new product to do so well, they just overshot and it did too good. <laughs> like it did far too well. And, you know, journalists started noticing like, this is a bit odd. Why is the ETF diverging so substantially from the performance of the mutual fund it alleges to track? They had explanations for it. They were like, oh, something in the mortgage market is very good. And we did that. And you're like, that's kind of inadequate. And it was because, you know, these emails that came out when the SEC investigated, it turned out that they were intentionally, I guess you could say, seeking out 
odd lots. So small, kind of off the run, little gnarly, misshapen pieces of MBS that had been paid down or, you know, had just been around for a long time and had lost their kind of beautiful round lotness or were more work than maybe other people would view as necessary. And so they trade at a discount. But the pricing systems didn't account for that discount. So you take an odd lot, you slot it into the pricing mechanism that PIMCO doesn't control. It's not their fault. And lo and behold, it's priced like a round lot. And I think they were just exploiting this pricing mechanism. And I remember when this came out because other mortgage traders were like, am I going to get in trouble? I didn't do that. Like, I don't mean for my odd lots to get priced at round. Like, they just do that. And like, it speaks to intention, right? Like you have to, you know, this is the chapter where there are some regrettable emails where it's like, find me odd lots by the end of the day. And, you know, had they not had those emails, I bet the SEC would have had a harder time ascribing that intent, right? But it was a pretty successful strategy. The ETF did amazing, too amazing. Yeah, I mean, if you can buy 70 cents and call it a dollar, you're doing pretty well, aren't you? <laughs> you're always going to win. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, except when you have to pay a settlement. So let's turn to the kind of twilight years. It was a kind of painful process. It was almost like a divorce process. Absolutely. I think it was um, not voluntary, his leaving PIMCO, Bill Gross. What do you think finally pushed it over the edge in terms of you know making the decision from the investment committee, was it? The executive committee. I mean, there were like a lot of final straws, so it's a bit hard to say. You know, they keep trying to have these conversations and build a succession plan and find a way for Bill Gross to exit peacefully. And every time they just are like not on the same page, not at the same pace, like just a step off each time. So, you know, every time Bill comes with a plan, they're like, we would have loved this three weeks ago, but you have burned us since then. And we just can't see this working anymore. And that happened so many times. And I think the final straw to me was in September, you know, September 2014 is when everything really comes to a head. And there's this thing, Bill gets fixated on perceived leakers. He gets this idea in his head that people within his firm have been leaking to the press about Muhammad Alarian's departure, and he just gets stuck on it. And in a way that's so unproductive for everyone else at the firm, and he starts to tie his own retirement to firing the leakers. The problem being, like, there were legal complications with that, with the people that he had decided needed to go. There were also problems that he had also talked to the press. So if you apply the same kind of principles equally, he should also get fired. I mean, he talked in pretty uh, bold terms to the press, and yeah. he talked is probably underselling it. Yeah. <laughs> he did a lot of things that were very public and not ideal, you could say, for the Pimco brand. I think that all of those in isolation would have been okay. Even like there's this one call to Reuters that's just like so beyond the pale, you know, reading it. I remember being like, I couldn't believe that. Right. I just remember looking at that and being like, I know she recorded this because like, look, you can't like, oh my God, like this is, <laughs> who does this? And I mean, it's like, I feel like we've seen something with the Scaramucci call in 20, was that 17, where it's just like, this person didn't realize what was happening. So I think in isolation, those all could have been okay. But cumulatively, the investment committee, the executive committee, the parent company in Germany, everyone's watching and they're just like, we can't predict what he's going to do. We have no control over him. He doesn't appear to have control over him. Like this just is continuing to get worse. And every time he comes with a plan, something new and horrible has happened and we are no longer able to function. So I think it's really the moment in September 2014, he comes back from a cruise and he's like, I don't want this succession plan that I told you to work on. I would never have asked for this. And they're like, like. We thought we had it. We like really thought we had a shot here and they just didn't. 
it's funny because I'm pretty sure I've gotten the same question before and answered it differently because <laughs> there are so many moments in the book where it's just like, that's it, that this man, this is over now. But yeah, it was fractious. It was bad. But ultimately he walked before he was pushed, kind of. That's exactly right. Yeah. It's a, you can't fire me. I quit. He left a note that I think was another regret. I'm projecting he hasn't said that, but you know, it came up in the lawsuit. He eventually sued Pimco over his own ouster and they were like, you quit. Here's the letter you left. It says, yeah. you know, I resign. And he was like, mm-hmm. you know, I think he ended up being pretty vindicated in that lawsuit. But nonetheless, I think the general idea is that, yeah, he left before they could fire him. It felt imminent. And then he went to Janus Capital. And then it gets a little bit sad, I think, this story, because, you know, he's trying to compete with his old fund. He can actually see the old office. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of like Vegas era Elvis. He's a bit like lost it. And everyone's like, you're still the king. You're still the Bond king, man. (laughs) Oh, my God. That's so brutal. (laughs) I had not thought of it that way. That's It was one of those things where I was like, when I saw the office and saw the building, I was like, you're kidding. Some parts of this book, like if I had written a fictional account, you'd be like, that's a bit on the nose, Mary. Can you tweak that? It's a little bit too literal. Um, (laughs) But this really happened. You know, you could see the PIMCO office from his Bloomberg and just stare at it. And he would check their returns every day when the market closed and check his own returns. And if he did better than them, he had a good night. And if he did worse than them, he'd had a bad night. And yeah, I find that super tragic because, you know, he wanted to show them who the really good deal was that he had been the Bond King and that, you know, they weren't great. He was. And like, who among us? Right. Like, I find that so familiar. (laughs) And the fact that he was unable to demonstrate that in the markets and then like the vindication, I think, in the lawsuit, you know, that's not the yardstick that he uses. That's not what he really wants. So that to some extent is meaningless. His marriage suffered and ended. His relationship with his son fell apart. Like, It just gets super sad. I mean, he's very manually turned it around a bit. He's remarried. He's golfing in Palm Springs all the time. I think he's focused on making his life good. I mean, he's still a multi-billionaire. Let's let's give him some credit. Yes, he is a multi-billionaire. I know he lost it all in the title of the book, but he kept the money. That's the important thing. (laughs) We differ on that, but (laughs) it's the $10 million coming up again. I do feel like he lost it all and the money's still there, but that to me is a bit incidental. Yeah, I mean, I'm joking. I mean, he lost his wife his job and a large part of his reputation, right? He did lose it all, at least how he probably gauged himself. That's how I'm thinking of it. Exactly. That it's like the things that he cared about were gone and he's rebuilt. He's gone out and found new things. And, you know, I think he's very consciously worked on that. But yeah, it was just a washout. It was really tragic. So do you think, I mean, what does this tell you about active management? Because I mean, obviously I talk about active management a lot and I kind of don't believe it really works for a lot of people. I'm so glad you say that. Does this tell you that maybe people think they can generate alpha, but really if you've got a whole firm behind you and you've got the structural alpha trades, maybe you can pull it off? Yeah, that's basically my takeaway. Like, I think this comes from kind of a journalistic bias place where I had to write up so many fund managers saying they're amazing trade ideas and I got a bit sick of it and I was kind of like, these only work like 40% of the time. Like I can't understand how this is like successful. And I feel bad that I'm like helping give a platform to this like statistically not good idea. Um, And structural alpha makes sense to me. I was just really elated to find it and understand it and like see that it was so contributive to their returns over all that time, because that's just reassuring that this whole thing isn't a scam. And (laughs) the problem isn't identifying it beforehand. So knowing Bill Gross knew he had a strategy, Bill Gross was always talking about it openly, publicly on TV, at, you know, Morningstar, telling everybody who would listen about structural alpha and always phrasing it like these are the keys to the kingdom. Like this is what we do at PIMCO that makes us so great, yada, yada. 
And I'm like, okay, that makes perfect sense. But I'm nervous trying to apply the same confidence and like credulity to other fund managers in real time telling me this is what they're doing and this is how they're doing it. It's just like, yes, it worked. I'm happy to look backward and identify that this worked. I'm far more nervous (laughs) looking at future returns. But also, is that structural alpha, if it exists, big enough to survive hundreds of millions of dollars each year going out (laughs) in compensation to the top executives? I mean, yeah, it is. I do think even with that alpha, this is such a cliche and I know that, but it's true. The where are the customers yachts? Like, why are the asset managers like the fund managers billionaires? Like that is inappropriate and everyone should feel bad. Did writing this book make you more or less likely to invest in PIMCO funds and the bond market? Well, I feel like I can't invest in PIMCO funds. It just feels emotionally yeah. complicated <laughs> and unethical or something. So yeah. I don't. But I don't. I mean, it. Ugh, I'm an index person, I guess. We both are as well. Yeah. <laughs> it just, yeah, you know, too much. But in terms of PIMCO recently, I mean, there was a story about it in the FT in August, actually. They've had a lot of outflows and people are kind of thinking that passive works for bonds as well. So, you know, Vanguard's hoovering up the money. So is BlackRock. So they're trying to shift to other things, you know, quite niche things. So the guy who took over, Dan Iverson, that's his specialty, right? Which is these kind of niche uh, investments. Yeah, he comes from the structured credit world, mortgage-backed world. So absolutely, I think he's very comfortable. You know, part of the tension in 2014 and 13 was over this idea of PIMCO investing in buildings, in mortgages, in real estate, in like distressed real estate where you might end up owning the building. There are only so many things that total return can buy, and this isn't one of them. This isn't like an on-the-run normal mutual fund product. So Dan came from this world of sort of more intricate things, more tangible things, which is kind of fun. But yeah, the opportunities can tend to be more niche, more one-off, more idiosyncratic. And I think that it's much harder to structural alpha in that, in my view, you know, that if it's definitionally going to be idiosyncratic, it's hard to get that edge back. On the flip side, you know, Dan did prove in the crisis and the aftermath that he could manage those and he structured that risk pretty well and did do a good job managing out of that. So I think Scott Simon called him a beast for his management in that time. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) coming from one of like the great mortgage investors. So I think, you know, he has a lot of respect in that, in that world, especially in the mortgage world. And so that's not a vote against it. It's just difficult. It's harder to scale for sure. Was there anything when you were doing the research for the book, I know it took like seven years, right? To get through everything that you were looking into and it was a bit of a mystery and you didn't manage to get to the bottom of it. Was there anything that still niggles at you? Oh, so many things. Yes. The one that comes to mind is the Solomon brothers, like the joke bid. So there's this moment in the early 90s where a bond salesman at Solomon is, she's having a baby, so she had to leave her job. I don't know if it was parental leave. I don't know if they'd invented that yet. Anyway, so these gentlemen decide they're going to play a fun trick on her and put in a joke bid and have her think that she accidentally put in the wrong number. You know, they're going to put in a bid for a billion dollars when they meant, you know, whatever else. And it'll be so funny that she'll think she messed up on her last day. Right. As a person who's been pregnant, this pains me and I'm like so mad about yeah, it. But yeah. <laughs> anyway, that aside, um, I understand the culture was much more rollicking back then. So they do this and it sort of awkwardly, this is like Chris Dialinus at PIMCO with the guy at Solomon. And this seems to be the beginning of like, maybe that guy at Solomon, like maybe it was a trial balloon to see what he could get away with because he starts kind of putting joke bids in or, you know, fake bids in like on the reg. Yeah. It's a weird hobby. It's a weird hobby. And it becomes this like weird thing where he's like in a face off against the treasury department, which like, good luck, bro. It fascinated me because like, that's a weird thing to get stuck in your craw. 
So I wanted to know more about that. And there's always this like smoke around it, right? There's this sense that PIMCO was involved in a bigger way and PIMCO did bad things. And I never found that. You know, I heard that Bill and Chris went to DC and had to like explain and everyone decided, yeah, you can go home. You didn't do anything wrong. You just thought you were playing a fun, cute prank on this saleswoman. So the credibility of the people who pointed me to that those people know. (laughs) So I got pointed back to that so many times. And then I would like shuffle around and like, look again and like nothing there. And then like another incredibly, like very credible person would be like, you need to look into this and I go look again. And (laughs) I got kind of spun around on it, but I didn't find it. But it's interesting because I mean, obviously gross is now kind of stepped back from the bond market. I think the character that we're interested in is Elarian right now. He's been saying some very positive things about the Bank of England It just makes me think, you know, maybe now we're going to have him as a Bank of England governor. Maybe that's the job he's going for next. Is there no reason people can say positive things about the Bank of England? Probably other than that. (laughs) That's the first reason and the last reason. Noted. (laughs) But do you think we might inherit him as a kind of Bank of England governor? And just off the top of your head, do you think he'd be good? Oh, wow. Um, I think he's very good at like keeping an eye on the economic consensus and articulating it clearly and being kind of like a, I don't know, like a central node for all of that, like data and noise and, you know, something you have to do at a central bank. So maybe from that perspective, but I do see, I mean, that makes sense. Like he's always been an ambitious person and he's always been keen to do kind of the, like he was initially going to be an academic. He was at the IMF. So it definitely seems in his wheelhouse and something that might be of interest. So yeah, maybe. Watch this space. Watch this space. Yeah. This whole story of Bill Gross and his kind of rise and half fall is ideally suited to a movie, right? Have you <laughs> optioned the book rights yet? Um, I can't disclose. You know, Hollywood confuses <laughs> me, but people are interested. I can tell you that. Okay. Who do you want to play Bill Gross? Oh, man. So I started out with Steve Buscemi in mind. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then I got obsessed with Michael Shannon for a little while. Yeah. And... Now I think Bill Nye. Really? Okay. Can you see it? Wouldn't that be the best? That would be good. I could see that. That one really, once (laughs) I got in my head, I was like, oh man. And now I'm like, that's my favorite right now. But he even looks like him. You know, he's got the same build. Yeah, I could see that. He's got the same build and he's got that kind of like intensity that he can ramp up when he wants. And like, I don't know. I feel like he's really, it would just, he could phone it in and crush it, (laughs) you know? Anyway, Mary, that's been brilliant. Thank you so much for spending the time with us. This was really fun. Y'all are a delight. And and I love the book. You know, I just say you're going to learn a lot about the bond market, a lot about the culture of how money's managed, which I think you don't normally see. You don't see how the sausages are made usually. So, you know, I really recommend it. So thank you so much. Thank you. I so appreciate that. I actually listened to the audiobook where it was just great because you narrated it yourself, right? And just hearing you read out all those aggressive emails and quotes was making me laugh. It's so polite. I tried to put my whole heart into it. I hope you yeah. I hope it came through. We've all gotten those emails, right? Yeah. Well, thank you. This was really fun and I appreciate y'all having me on. Thank you for joining us for Many Happy Returns. It would be great if you could leave us a quick rating or review on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to the show. And do remember to check out pensioncraft.com for all the information about our membership, courses, and investment coaching options. Many Happy Returns is a Pensioncraft production, co-hosted and executive produced by Romin Nakiza and Michael Pugh. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes and is not financial advice. We do not provide recommendations or endorse any decision to buy, sell or hold any security. We cannot be held responsible for any actions listeners may take and investors are encouraged to seek independent financial advice.